1.1 His mother's name was Rose, and when he was big enough to tie his shoes and stop wetting the bed, he was going to marry her. Ferguson knew that Rose was already married to his father, but his father was an old man, and it wouldn't be long now before he was dead. Once that happened, Ferguson would marry his mother, and from then on, her husband's name would be Archie, not Stanley. It would be sad when his father died, but not too sad, not sad enough to shed any tears. Tears were for babies, and he wasn't a baby anymore. There were moments when tears still came out of him, of course, but only when he fell down and hurt himself, and hurting yourself didn't count. The best things in the world were vanilla ice cream and jumping up and down on his parents' bed. The worst things in the world were stomach aches and fevers. He knew now that sour balls were dangerous. No matter how much he liked them, he understood that he mustn't put them in his mouth anymore. They were too slippery, and he couldn't help swallowing them. And because they were too big to go all the way down, they would get stuck in his windpipe and make it hard to breathe. He would never forget how bad it felt the day he started to choke. But then his mother rushed into the room, lifted him off the ground, turned him upside down, and with one hand holding him by the feet, pounded him on the back with the other hand until the sour ball popped out of his mouth and clattered onto the floor. His mother said, No more sour balls, Archie. They're too dangerous. After that, she asked him to help her carry the bowl of sour balls into the kitchen. And one by one, they took turns dropping the red, yellow, and green candies into the garbage. Then his mother said, Adios, sour balls. Such a funny word. Adios. That happened in Newark in the long-ago days when they lived in the apartment on the third floor. Now they lived in a house in a place called Montclair. The house was bigger than the apartment, but the truth was that he had trouble remembering much about the apartment anymore. Except for the sour balls. Except for the Venetian blinds in his room, which rattled whenever the window was open except for the day when his mother folded up his crib and he slept alone in a bed for the first time. His father left the house early in the morning, often before Ferguson was awake. Sometimes his father would come home for dinner, and sometimes he wouldn't come home until after Ferguson had been put to bed. His father worked. That was what grown men did. They left the house every day and worked, and because they worked, they made money, and because they made money, they could buy things for their wives and children. That was how his mother explained it to him one morning, as he watched his father's blue car drive away from the house. It seemed to be a good arrangement, Ferguson thought, but the money part was a little confusing. Money was so small and dirty, and how could those small, dirty pieces of paper get you something as big as a car or a house? His parents had two cars, his father's blue DeSoto and his mother's green Chevrolet. But Ferguson had 36 cars, and on gloomy days when it was too wet to go outside, he would take them out of their box and line up his miniature fleet on the living room floor. There were two-door cars and four-door cars, convertibles and dump trucks, police cars and ambulances, taxis and buses fire trucks and cement mixers, delivery trucks and station wagons, Fords and Chryslers, Pontiacs and Studebakers, Buicks and Nash Ramblers, each one different from the others, no two even remotely alike, 
and whenever Ferguson began to push one of them across the floor, he would bend down and look inside at the empty driver's seat. And because every car needed a driver in order to move, he would imagine he was the person sitting behind the wheel, a tiny person, a man so tiny he was no bigger than the top joint of his thumb. His mother smoked cigarettes, but his father smoked nothing, not even a pipe or cigars. Old Golds, such a good-sounding name, Ferguson thought, and how hard he laughed when his mother blew smoke rings for him. Sometimes his father would say to her, Rose, you smoke too much, and his mother would nod her head and agree with him, but still she went on smoking as much as before. Whenever he and his mother climbed into the green car to go out on errands, they would stop for lunch in a little restaurant called Al's Diner. And as soon as he finished his chocolate milk and grilled cheese sandwich, his mother would hand him a quarter and ask him to buy her a pack of old golds from the cigarette machine. It made him feel like a big person to be given that quarter, which was about the best feeling there was. And off he would march to the back of the diner, where the machine stood against the wall between the two restrooms. Once there, he would reach up on his toes to put the coin in the slot, pull the knob under the pillar of stacked-up old golds, and then listen to the sound of the pack as it tumbled out of the bulky machine and landed in the silver trough below the knobs. In those days, cigarettes didn't cost 25 cents but 23 cents, and each pack came with two freshly minted copper pennies tucked inside the cellophane wrapper. Ferguson's mother always let him keep those two pennies, and as she smoked her post-lunch cigarette and finished her coffee, he would hold them in his open palm and study the embossed profile of the man on the face of the two coins, Abraham Lincoln. Or, as his mother sometimes said, Honest Abe. Beyond the little family of Ferguson and his parents, there were two other families to think about, his father's family and his mother's family the New Jersey Fergusons and the New York Adlers, the big family with two aunts, two uncles, and five cousins, and the small family with his grandparents and Aunt Mildred, which sometimes included his great-aunt Pearl and his grown-up twin cousins, Betty and Charlotte. Uncle Lou had a thin mustache and wore wire-rimmed glasses. Uncle Arnold smoked camels and had reddish hair. Aunt Joan was short and round. Aunt Millie was a little taller but very thin and the cousins mostly ignored him because he was so much younger than they were, except for Francie, who sometimes babysat for him when his parents went to the movies or to someone's house for a party. Francie was far and away his favorite person in the New Jersey family. She made beautiful, complicated drawings of castles and knights on horses for him, let him eat as much vanilla ice cream as he wanted, told funny jokes, and was ever so pretty to look at with long hair that seemed both brown and red at the same time. Aunt Mildred was pretty as well, but her hair was blonde, unlike his mother's hair, which was dark brown. And even though his mother kept telling him that Mildred was her sister, he sometimes forgot because the two of them looked so different. He called his grandfather Papa and his grandmother Nana. Papa smoked Chesterfields and had lost most of his hair. Nana was on the fat side and laughed in the most interesting way, as if there were birds trapped inside her throat. It was better to visit the Adler apartment in New York than the Ferguson houses in Union and Maplewood, not least because the drive through the Holland Tunnel was something he relished, 
The curious sensation of traveling through an underwater tube lined with millions of identical square tiles. And each time he made that sub-aquatic journey, he would marvel at how neatly the tiles fit together and wonder how many men it had taken to finish such a colossal task. The apartment was smaller than the houses in New Jersey, but it had the advantage of being high up, on the sixth floor of the building, and Ferguson never tired of looking out the window in the living room and watching the traffic move around Columbus Circle. And then, on Thanksgiving, there was the further advantage of being able to watch the annual parade pass in front of that window, with the gigantic balloon of Mickey Mouse almost smack against his face. Another good thing about going to New York was that there were always presents when he arrived. Boxed candies from his grandmother, books and records from Aunt Mildred, and all kinds of special things from his grandfather. Balsa wood airplanes, a game called Parcheesi, another excellent word, decks of playing cards, magic tricks, a red cowboy hat, and a pair of six-shooters in genuine leather holsters. The New Jersey houses offered no such bounties, and therefore Ferguson decided that New York was the place to be. When he asked his mother why they couldn't live there all the time, she broke into a big smile and said, Ask your father. And when he asked his father, his father said, Ask your mother. Apparently, there were some questions that had no answer. He wanted a brother, preferably an older brother. But since that wasn't possible anymore, he would settle for a younger brother. And if he couldn't have a brother, he would make do with a sister, even a younger sister. It was often lonely having no one to play with or talk to. And experience had taught him that every child had a brother or a sister or several brothers and sisters, and as far as he could tell, he was the only exception to that rule anywhere in the world. Francie had Jack and Ruth, Andrew and Alice had each other, his friend Bobby down the street had a brother and two sisters, and even his own parents had spent their childhoods in the company of other children, two brothers for his father and one sister for his mother. It didn't seem fair that he should be the only person among the billions of people on earth who had to spend his life alone. He had no clear knowledge of how babies were produced, but he had learned enough to know they started inside the bodies of their mothers, and therefore mothers were essential to the operation, which meant that he would have to talk to his own mother about changing his status from only child to brother. The next morning, he brought up the subject by bluntly asking her if she could please get busy with the work of manufacturing a new baby for him. His mother stood there in silence for a couple of seconds, then lowered herself to her knees, looked him in the eyes, and began stroking his head. This was strange, he thought, not at all what he was expecting. And for a moment or two his mother looked sad, so sad that Ferguson instantly regretted having asked the question. Oh, Archie, she said, of course you want a brother or a sister, and I'd love for you to have one but it seems I'm done making babies and can't have any more. I felt sorry for you when the doctor told me that, but then I thought, maybe it's not such a bad thing after all. Do you know why? Ferguson shook his head. Because I love my little Archie so much. And how can I love another child when all the love I have in me is just for you? It wasn't just a temporary problem, he now realized. It was eternal. No siblings ever. And because that struck Ferguson as an intolerable state of affairs, he worked his way around the impasse by inventing an imaginary brother for himself. It was an act of desperation, perhaps, but surely something was better than nothing. 
And even if he couldn't see or touch or smell that something, what other choice did he have? He called his newborn brother John. Since the laws of reality no longer applied, John was older than he was, older by four years, which meant that he was taller and stronger and smarter than Ferguson. And unlike Bobby George, who lived down the street, chubby, big-boned Bobby, who breathed through his mouth because his nose was always clogged with wet green snot, John could read and write and was a champion baseball and football player. Ferguson made sure never to talk out loud to him when other people were in the room, for John was his secret, and he didn't want anyone to know about him, not even his father and mother. He slipped up only once, but it turned out all right because the flub occurred when he happened to be with Francie. She had come to babysit that evening, and when she walked out into the backyard and heard him telling John about the horse he wanted for his next birthday, she asked him who he was talking to. Ferguson liked Francie so much that he told her the truth. He thought she might laugh at him, but Francie merely nodded, as if expressing her approval of the concept of imaginary brothers. And so Ferguson allowed her to talk to John as well. For months afterward, every time he saw Francie, she would first say hello to him in her normal voice, and then bend down, put her mouth against his ear, and whisper, Hello, John. Ferguson was not yet five years old. But he already understood that the world consisted of two realms, the visible and the invisible, and that the things he couldn't see were often more real than the things he could. Two of the best places to visit were his grandfather's office in New York and his father's store in Newark. The office was on West 57th Street, just one block from where his grandparents lived. And the first good thing about it was that it was on the 11th floor, even higher than the apartment which made looking out the window even more interesting than on West 58th Street, for his gaze could travel far more deeply into the surrounding distance and take in many more buildings, not to speak of most of Central Park. And down on the street below, the cars and taxis were so small that they resembled the toy cars he played with at home. The next good thing about the office was the big desks with the typewriters and adding machines on them. The sound of the typewriters sometimes made him think of music, especially when the bell rang at the end of a line. But it also made him think of hard rain falling on the roof of the house in Montclair and the sound of pebbles being thrown against a glass window. His grandfather's secretary was a bony woman named Doris, who had black hairs on her forearms and smelled of breath mints. But he liked it when she called him Master Ferguson and let him use her typewriter which he referred to as Sir Underwood, and now that he was beginning to learn the letters of the alphabet, there was the satisfaction of being able to put his fingers on the keys of that heavy instrument and tap out a line of A's and Y's, for example, or, if Doris wasn't too busy, of asking her to help him write his name. The store in Newark was much bigger than the office in New York, and there were many more things in it, not just a typewriter and three editing machines in the back room, but row after row of small gadgets and large appliances, and a whole area on the second floor for beds and tables and chairs. Numberless numbers of beds and tables and chairs. Ferguson wasn't supposed to touch them. But when his father and uncles were out of sight, or had their backs turned to him, he would occasionally sneak open a refrigerator door to smell the peculiar smell inside, or hoist himself onto a bed, test the bounce of the mattress. And even when he was caught doing those things, no one was terribly angry except Uncle Arnold sometimes, 
would snap at him and growl, hands off the merchandise, Sonny. He didn't like being talked to in that way, and he especially didn't like it when his uncle swatted him on the back of the head one Saturday afternoon because the sting had hurt so much he had cried. But now that he had overheard his mother say to his father that Uncle Arnold was a dope, Ferguson didn't really care anymore. In any case, the beds and refrigerators never held his attention for long, not when there were the televisions to look at, the newly built Philcos and Emersons that reigned over all the other goods on display, twelve or fifteen models standing side by side against the wall to the left of the front door, all of them turned on with the sound off, and Ferguson liked nothing better than to switch the channels on the sets so that seven different programs were playing simultaneously. What a delirious swirl of mayhem that set in motion, with a cartoon on the first screen and a western on the second screen and a soap opera on the third and a church service on the fourth and a commercial on the fifth and a newscaster on the sixth and a football game on the seventh. Ferguson would run back and forth from one screen to another, then spin around in a circle until he was almost dizzy, gradually moving away from the screens as he spun so that when he stopped he would be in a position to watch all seven of them at once, and seeing so many different things happen at the same time never failed to make him laugh. Funny. So funny it was, and his father let him do it because his father thought it was funny, too. Most of the time, his father wasn't funny. He worked long hours, six days a week, the longest days being Wednesday and Friday, when the store didn't close until nine o'clock, and on Sunday he slept until ten or ten-thirty and played tennis in the afternoon. His favorite command was, listen to your mother. His favorite question was, have you been a good boy? Ferguson tried to be a good boy and listen to his mother, although he sometimes fell down on the job and forgot to be good or to listen. But the lucky thing about those failures was that his father never seemed to notice. He was probably too busy to notice, and Ferguson was grateful for that, since his mother rarely punished him, even when he forgot to listen or be good. And because his father never yelled at him in the way Aunt Millie yelled at her children, and never swatted him in the way Uncle Arnold sometimes swatted Cousin Jack, Ferguson concluded that his branch of the Ferguson family was the best one, even if it was too small. Still, there were times when his father made him laugh, and because those times were few and far between, Ferguson laughed even harder than he might have laughed if they had happened more often. One funny thing was being thrown up in the air. And because his father was so strong and had such hard, bulging muscles, Ferguson flew up almost to the ceiling when they were indoors, and even higher than that when they were in the backyard. And not once did it cross his mind that his father would drop him, which meant that he felt safe enough to open his mouth as wide as he could and fill the air with loud bellyfuls of laughter. Another funny thing was watching his father juggle oranges in the kitchen. And a third funny thing was hearing him fart, not just because farts were funny in themselves, but because each time his father let out a fart in his presence, he would say, whoops, there goes Hoppy, meaning Hoplong Cassidy, the cowboy on TV that Ferguson liked so much. Why his father would say that after he farted was one of the world's great mysteries, but Ferguson loved it anyway, and he always laughed when his father said those words. Such an odd, interesting idea to turn a fart into a cowboy named Hopalong Cassidy. 
Not long after Ferguson's fifth birthday, his aunt Mildred married Henry Ross, a tall man with thinning hair who worked as a college professor, as did Mildred, who had finished her studies in English literature four years earlier and was teaching at a college called Vassar. Ferguson's new uncle smoked Paul Malls, outstanding, and they are mild, and seemed highly nervous, since he smoked more cigarettes in one afternoon than his mother did in an entire day. But what intrigued Ferguson most about Mildred's husband was that he talked so quickly and used such long, complicated words that it was impossible to understand more than a fraction of what he was saying. Still, he struck Ferguson as a good-hearted fellow, with a jolly boom in his laugh and a bright glow in his eyes, and it was clear to him that his mother was happy with Mildred's choice, since she never referred to Uncle Henry without using the word brilliant and repeatedly said that he reminded her of someone named Rex Harrison. Ferguson hoped his aunt and uncle would get cracking in the baby department and rapidly spew forth a little cousin for him. Imaginary brothers could take you just so far, after all, and perhaps an other cousin could turn into something like an almost brother or, in a pinch, an almost sister. For several months, he waited for the announcement every morning expecting his mother to come into his room and tell him that Aunt Mildred was going to have a child. But then something happened, an unforeseen calamity that overturned all of Ferguson's carefully worked-out plans. His aunt and uncle were moving to Berkeley, California. They were going to teach there and live there and were never coming back, which meant that even if they did produce a cousin for him, that cousin could never be turned into an almost brother since brothers and almost brothers had to live nearby, preferably in one's very house. When his mother took out a map of the United States and showed him where California was, he was so disheartened that he pounded his fist on Ohio, Kansas, Utah, and every other state between New Jersey and the Pacific Ocean. Three thousand miles, an impossible distance, so far away that it could have been in another country, another world. It was one of the strongest memories he carried away from his boyhood. The trip to the airport in the green Chevrolet with his mother and Aunt Mildred on the day his aunt left for California. Uncle Henry had flown out there two weeks earlier, so it was just Aunt Mildred who was with them on that hot, humid day in mid-August. Ferguson, riding in the back, dressed in short pants, his scalp moist with sweat and his bare legs sticking to the invitation leather seat, and although it was the first time he had been to an airport, the first time he had seen planes up close and could savor the immensity and beauty of those machines, the morning remained inside him because of the two women, his mother and her sister, the one dark and the other blonde, the one with long hair and the other with short hair, each so different from the other that you had to study their faces for a while to understand they had come from the same two parents, his mother, who was so affectionate and warm, always touching and hugging you, and Mildred, who was so guarded and held back, rarely touching anyone. And yet there they were together at the gate for the Pan Am flight to San Francisco, and when the number of the flight was announced over the loudspeaker, and the moment came to say goodbye, suddenly, as if by some hidden, predetermined signal, the two of them began to weep. Tears were cascading from their eyes and dropping to the floor and then their arms were around each other, and they were hugging, weeping and hugging at the same time. His mother had never cried in front of him before, and until he saw it with his own eyes, 
He hadn't even known that Mildred was capable of crying. But there they were, weeping in front of him, as they said goodbye to each other, both of them understanding that it could be months or years before they saw each other again. And Ferguson saw it as he stood below them in his five-year-old's body, looking up at his mother and his aunt, stunned by the excess of emotion pouring out of them, and the image traveled to a place so deep inside him that he never forgot it. In November of the following year, two months after Ferguson entered the first grade, his mother opened a photography studio in downtown Montclair. The sign above the front door said, Roseland Photo, and life among the Fergusons suddenly took on a new, accelerated rhythm, beginning with the daily morning scramble to get one of them off to school on time, and the other two into their separate cars to drive off to work. And with his mother now gone from the house five days a week, Tuesday through Saturday, there was a woman named Cassie who did the chores, cleaning and making beds and shopping for food, and sometimes even making dinner for Ferguson when his parents worked late. He saw much less of his mother now, but the truth was that he needed her less. He could tie his own shoes, after all, and whenever he thought about the person he wanted to marry, he would hesitate between two potential candidates. Kathy Gold, the short girl with the blue eyes and the long blonde ponytail, and Margie Fitzpatrick, the towering redhead who was so strong and fearless that she could lift two boys off the ground at once. The first person to sit for a portrait at Roseland Photo was the proprietor's son. Ferguson's mother had been aiming her camera at him for as long as he could remember, but those earlier pictures had been snapshots, and the camera she had used was small and light and portable, whereas the camera in the studio was much bigger and had to be mounted on a three-legged stand called a tripod. He liked the word tripod, which made him think of peas, his favorite vegetable, as in the expression, two peas in a pod. And he was also impressed by how carefully his mother adjusted the lights before she began taking the pictures, which seemed to indicate she was in full command of what she was doing. And to see her working with such skill and assurance gave Ferguson a good feeling about his mother who was suddenly no longer just his mother, but someone who did important things out in the world. She made him wear nice clothes for the picture, which meant putting on his tweed sports jacket and his white shirt with the broad collar and no top button. And because Ferguson found it so enjoyable to be sitting there as his mother went about the business of getting the pose just right, he had no trouble smiling when she asked him to. His mother's friend from Brooklyn was with them that day, Nancy Solomon, who had once been Nancy Fine and now lived in West Orange. Funny Nancy with the buck teeth and the two little boys, his mother's bosom buddy, and therefore a person he had known all his life. His mother explained that after the photos were developed, one of them would be blown up to a very large size and transferred to canvas, which Nancy would then paint over, turning the photograph into a color portrait in oils. That was one of the services Roseland Photo was planning to offer its customers, not just black-and-white portraits, but oil paintings as well. Ferguson had trouble imagining how this could be done, but he figured Nancy would have to be an awfully good painter to pull off such a difficult transformation. Two Saturdays later, Kina's mother left the house at 8 o'clock in the morning and drove to downtown Montclair. The street was nearly deserted, which meant there was a free parking space directly in front of Roseland Photo, 
But 20 or 30 yards before they came to a stop, his mother told Ferguson to shut his eyes. He wanted to ask her why, but just as he was about to open his mouth and speak, she said, No questions, Archie. So he shut his eyes, and when they pulled up in front of the studio, she helped him out of the car and led him by the hand to the place where she wanted him to be. All right, she said, you can open them now. Ferguson opened his eyes and found himself looking into the display window of his mother's new establishment. And what he saw there were two large images of himself, each one measuring about 24 inches by 36 inches. The first one, a black and white photograph, and the second one, an exact replica of the first, only in color, with his sandy hair and gray-green eyes and red-flecked brown jacket looking much as they did in the real world. Nancy's brushwork was so precise, so perfect in its execution, that he couldn't tell if he was looking at a photograph or a painting. Some weeks passed, and with the pictures now on permanent display, strangers began to recognize him stopping him on the street to ask if he wasn't the little guy in the window of Roseland photo. He had become the most famous six-year-old in Montclair, the poster boy for his mother's studio, a legend. On September 29, 1954, Ferguson stayed home from school. He had a fever of 101.6 and had spent the previous night throwing up into an aluminum stew pot his mother had put on the floor beside his bed. When she left for work in the morning, she told him to stay in his pajamas and sleep as much as he could. If he couldn't sleep, he was to remain in bed with his comic books, and whenever he had to go to the bathroom, he should remember to put on his slippers. By one o'clock, however, the fever had dropped to 99, and he was feeling well enough to go downstairs and ask Cassie if he could have something to eat. She made him scrambled eggs and dry toast, which went down without disturbing his stomach. And so rather than go upstairs and return to his bed, he shuffled into the small room next to the kitchen that his parents alternately referred to as the den and the little living room and turned on the television. Cassie followed him in, sat down on the sofa beside him, and announced that the first game of the World Series would be starting in a few minutes. The World Series. He knew what that was, but he had never watched any of the games and only once or twice had he watched any regular season games. Not because he didn't like baseball, which in fact he enjoyed playing very much, but simply because he was always outside with his friends when the day games were on, and by the time the night games started, he had already been put to bed. He recognized the names of some of the important players. Williams, Musial, Feller, Robinson, Berra. But he didn't follow any particular team, didn't read the sports pages in the Newark Star-Ledger or the Newark Evening News, and had no idea what it meant to be a fan. By contrast, the 38-year-old Cassie Burton was an ardent follower of the Brooklyn Dodgers, chiefly because Jackie Robinson played for them, number 42, the second baseman she always called My Man Jackie, the first person with dark skin to wear a major league uniform, a fact that Ferguson had learned from both his mother and Cassie. But Cassie had more to say on the subject because she was a person with dark skin herself, a woman who had spent the first 18 years of her life in Georgia and spoke with a heavy southern accent, which Ferguson found both strange and marvelous, so languid in its musicality that he never tired of listening to Cassie talk. The Dodgers weren't in it this year, she told him. 
They had been beaten out by the Giants. But the Giants were a local team as well, and therefore she was rooting for them to win the series. They had some good colored players, she said. That was the word she used, colored. Even though Ferguson's mother had instructed him to say the word Negro when talking about people with black or brown skin. And how odd it was, he thought, that a Negro should not say Negro, but colored, which proved, yet again, just how confounding the world could be. But in spite of the presence of Willie Mays and Hank Thompson and Monty Irvin on the Giants roster, no one was giving them a chance against the Cleveland Indians, who had set a record for the most wins by an American League team. We'll see about that, Cassie said, not willing to concede anything to the odds makers. And then she and Ferguson settled in to watch the broadcast from the polo grounds, which started out badly when Cleveland scored twice in the top of the first inning. But the Giants got those runs back in the bottom of the third, and then the game evolved into one of those tense, well-pitched struggles, Magley versus Lemon, in which no one does much of anything and all can hinge on a single at-bat, which elevates the importance and drama of every pitch as the game wears on. Five consecutive innings, with no one crossing the plate for either team, and then, suddenly, in the top of the eighth, the Indians put two runners on base and upstepped Vic Wirtz, a power-hitting left-handed batter, who tore into a fastball from Giants reliever Don Little and sent it flying deep to center field, so deep that Ferguson thought it was a sure home run, but he was still a novice at that point and didn't know that the polo grounds was an oddly configured ballpark. With the deepest center field in all of baseball, 483 feet from home plate to the fence, which meant that Wirtz's monumental fly ball, which would have been a home run anywhere else, was not going to make it to the bleachers. But still, it was a thunderous blast, and there was every certainty it would sail over the head of the giant center fielder and bounce all the way to the wall, good enough for a triple, perhaps even an inside-the-park home run, which would give the Indians at least two, if not three more runs. But then Ferguson saw something that defied all probability, a feat of athletic prowess that dwarfed every other human accomplishment he had witnessed in his short life. For there was the young Willie Mays running after the ball with his back turned to the infield, running in a way Ferguson had never seen a man run, sprinting from the second the ball left Wirtz's bat, as if the sound of the ball colliding with the wood had told him exactly where the ball was going to land, Willie Mays not looking up or back as he sprinted toward the ball, knowing where the ball was throughout its entire trajectory, even if he couldn't see it, as if he had eyes in the back of his head, and then the ball reached the top of its arc and was descending to a spot some 440 feet from home plate. And there was Willie Mays extending his arms in front of him, and there was the ball coming down over his left shoulder and landing in the pocket of his open glove. The moment Mays caught the ball, Cassie jumped up from the sofa and started shrieking, Hot damn! Hot damn! Hot damn! But there was more to the play than just the catch. For the instant the men on base had seen the ball leave Wirtz's bat, they had started running, running with the conviction that they were going to score that they had to score because no center fielder could possibly catch such a ball. And so right after Mays caught the ball, he spun around and threw it to the infield, an impossibly long throw that was thrown so hard that he lost his cap and fell to the ground after the ball left his hand. And not only was Wirtz out, but the lead runner was prevented from scoring on the fly ball. The score was still tied. It seemed inevitable that the Giants would win in the bottom of the eighth or ninth, but they didn't. 
The game went into extra innings. Marv Grissom, the new relief pitcher for the Giants, held the Indians scoreless in the top of the tenth. And then the Giants put two men on in the bottom of the inning, prompting manager Leo DeRocher to send in Dusty Rhodes as a pinch hitter. What a good-sounding name that was, Ferguson said to himself. Dusty Rhodes, which was almost like calling someone wet sidewalks or snowy streets. But when Cassie saw the thick-browed Alabaman take his warm-up swing, she said, Look at that old cracker with the stubble on his chin. If he ain't drunk, Archie, then I'm the Queen of England. Drunk or not, Rhodes's eyesight was in excellent form that day. And a split second after the arm-weary Bob Lemon delivered a not-so-fast fastball over the middle of the plate, Rhodes turned on it and pulled it over the right field wall. Game over. Giants 5, Indians 2. Cassie whooped. Ferguson whooped. They hugged. They jumped up and down. They danced around the room together. And from that day forth, baseball was Ferguson's game. The Giants went on to sweep the Indians by winning the second, third, and fourth games as well. A miraculous upset that brought much happiness to the seven-year-old Ferguson. But no one was happier with the results of the 1954 World Series than Uncle Lou. His father's oldest brother had suffered his ups and downs as a gambler over the years, consistently losing more than he won, but winning just enough to keep himself from drowning. And now, with the smart money all on Cleveland, it would have made sense for him to follow the herd, but the Giants were his team. He had been pulling for them through good seasons and bad since the early 20s. And for once, he decided to ignore the odds and bet with his heart rather than his brain. Not only did he put his money on the underdogs, but he wagered they would win four in a row. A hunch so preposterous and delusional that his bookie gave him odds of 300 to 1, which meant that for the modest sum of $200, the sharp-dressing Lou Ferguson walked off with a pot of gold, 60 grand, an enormous amount back in those days, a fortune. The hall was so spectacular, so startling in its ramifications, that Uncle Lou and Aunt Millie invited everyone to their house for a party, a celebratory blowout with champagne, lobster, and thick porterhouse steaks that featured a viewing of Millie's new Ming coat and a spin around the block in Lou's new white Cadillac. Ferguson was out of sorts that day. Francie wasn't there. His stomach hurt, and his other cousins barely talked to him, but he assumed that everyone else was having a good time. After the festivities ended, however, as he and his parents were on their way home in the blue car, he was caught by surprise when his mother started bad-mouthing Uncle Lou to his father. He couldn't follow everything she said, but the anger in her voice was unusually harsh, a bitter harangue that seemed to have something to do with his uncle owing his father money. And how dare Lou splurge on Cadillacs and mink coats before paying his father back? His father took it calmly at first, but then he raised his voice, which was something that almost never happened, and suddenly he was barking at Ferguson's mother to stop, telling her that Lou didn't owe him anything, that it was his brother's money and he could do anything he goddamn pleased with it. Ferguson knew his parents sometimes argued. He could hear their voices through the wall of their bedroom. But this was the first time they had fought a battle in front of him, and because it was the first time, he couldn't help feeling that something fundamental about the world had changed. Just after Thanksgiving the following year, his father's warehouse was emptied out in a nighttime burglary. 
The warehouse was the one-story, cinder-block building that stood behind Three Brothers' homeworld, and Ferguson had visited it several times over the years, a vast, dank-smelling room with row upon row of cardboard boxes containing televisions, refrigerators, washing machines, and all the other things the brothers sold in their store. The stuff on display in the showrooms was merely for the customers to look at. But whenever someone wanted to buy something, it would be taken out of the warehouse by a man named Ed, a big fellow with a mermaid tattooed onto his right forearm, who had served on an aircraft carrier during the war. If it was a small thing, like a toaster or a lamp or a coffee pot, Ed would hand it to the customer, who would drive it home in his or her own car. But if it was a big thing, like a washing machine or a refrigerator, Ed and another large-muscled vet named Phil would load it into the back of the delivery truck and drive it to the customer's house. That was how business was conducted at Three Brothers' homeworld. Ferguson was familiar with the system, old enough to understand that the warehouse was the heart of the operation. And so when his mother woke him up on the Sunday morning after Thanksgiving and told him that the warehouse had been robbed, he immediately grasped the dreadful significance of the crime. An empty warehouse meant no business. No business meant no money. No money meant trouble. The poorhouse. Starvation. Death. His mother pointed out that the situation wasn't quite that desperate because all the stolen goods were insured. But yes, it was a tough blow, especially with the Christmas shopping season about to begin. And since it would probably be weeks or months before the insurance company paid up, the store wouldn't be able to survive without an emergency loan from the bank. Meanwhile, his father was in Newark talking to the police, she said, and because every article had a serial number on it, maybe there was a chance, a small chance, that the robbers would be hunted down and caught. Time passed, and no robbers were found. But his father managed to get the loan from the bank, which meant that Ferguson and his family were spared the dishonor of having to relocate to the poorhouse. Life went on then, more or less as it had been going for the past several years. But Ferguson sensed a new atmosphere in the household, something grim and sullen and mysterious hovering in the air around him. It took a while before he could identify the source of that barometric shift, but by observing his mother and father whenever he was with them, both singly and in tandem, he concluded that his mother was essentially the same, still full of stories about her work at the studio, still producing her daily quotient of smiles and laughter, still looking him directly in the eye whenever she spoke to him, still up for fierce games of ping-pong on the winterized back porch, still listening to him intently whenever he came to her with a problem. It was his father who was different, his normally untalkative father, who now said almost nothing at the breakfast table in the morning, who seemed distracted and barely present, as if his mind were concentrating on some dark, grievous thing he wasn't willing to share with anyone. Sometime after the beginning of the new year, when 1955 had turned into 1956, Ferguson summoned up the courage to approach his mother and ask her what was wrong, to explain why his father looked so sad and distant. It was the burglary, she said. The burglary was eating him alive, and the more he thought about it, the less he could think about anything else. Ferguson didn't understand. 
The warehouse had been broken into six or seven weeks ago. The insurance company was going to pay for the lost goods. The bank had come through with the loan, and the store was still on its feet. Why would his father worry when there was nothing to worry about? He saw his mother hesitate, as if struggling to decide whether to take him into her confidence, not sure if he was old enough to handle the facts of the story. Doubt flickering in her eyes for no more than an instant, but palpable for all that, and then, as she stroked his head and studied his not-yet-nine-year-old face, she took the plunge, opening up to him in a way she had never done before, and let him in on the secret that was tearing his father apart. The police and the insurance company were still working on the case, she said, and they had both come to the conclusion that it was an inside job meaning the burglary had not been committed by strangers, but by someone who worked at the store. Ferguson, who knew everyone on the staff of Three Brothers Homeworld, from the warehouse men Ed and Phil, to the bookkeeper Adele Rosen, to the repairman Charlie Sykes, to the janitor Bob Dawkins, felt the muscles in his stomach clench into a small fist of pain. It wasn't possible that any of those good people could have done such an evil thing to his father. Not a single one of them was capable of such treachery, and therefore the police and the insurance company must be wrong. No, Archie, his mother said, I don't think they're wrong. But the person who did it wasn't any of the people you just mentioned. What did she mean by that? Ferguson wondered. The only other people connected to the store were Uncle Lou and Uncle Arnold, his father's brothers. And brothers didn't rob one another, did they? Things like that simply didn't happen. Your father had a terrible decision to make, his mother said. Either drop the charges and the insurance claim, or send Arnold to prison. What do you think he did? He dropped the charges and didn't send Arnold to prison. Of course not. He never would have dreamed of it, but you understand now why he's been so upset. A week after Ferguson had this conversation with his mother, she told him that Uncle Arnold and Aunt Joan were moving to Los Angeles. She would miss Joan, his mother said, but it was probably better this way, since the damage that had been done was beyond repair. Two months after Arnold and Joan left for California, Uncle Lou smashed up his white Cadillac on the Garden State Parkway and died in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And before anyone could comprehend how swiftly the gods accomplished their work, when they had nothing better to do, the Ferguson clan had been blown to bits.